San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. All right, good buddy. My name is Joe Vecchio, your co-host, announcer, and producer, coming to you from KFMB Studios with 50,000 watts of power. We're heard not just in San San Diego County, but Orange County, LA County, up the coast of Seattle on a good night, down to Cabo, out to the desert. If you download the app for 760KFMB, you can hear us live uh, during the show. And also all these podcasts are on iWayMoney.com, and we are free on iTunes. And now time to introduce the main man of the hour. He's a CPA extraordinary, a best-selling author, a lecturer, a a philanthropist, and a family office expert advising several high-net-worth families. Families. His name is Richard Musio. Richard, good evening. How are you? Doing great, Joe. <laughs> hey, so we just booked a big event at Belmont Park. We're going to close the park on September 30th. We're going to talk about this on the show more as we hit the summertime. September 30th. But it's, it's going to be proclaimed in San Diego as the Day of Happiness. Really? And it's going to be a really cool event where the park is closed and just people who get to come get to come and enjoy Belmont Park for the whole day to celebrate being happy. Is open to the public? Or we don't well, you got to buy a ticket. Oh. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> oh, somebody's going to make some dough. But okay. Well, I mean, you know, the cost of food. I mean, there's a lot of things that go oh, into hold, hosting a big event. Well, I've been down there recently, and I'll tell you, the boardwalk is, the new boardwalk is, is spectacular, and the wall is spectacular, and um, people have to get down where they are. They are down there, aren't they? I mean, oh, yeah, they're down there. Wait till, we, <laughs> wait till the summertime comes, and they're really going to be down you've there. You've got to really go early or something to, to avoid the, the crowds and whatnot. Take a so, cab. But uh, that's good news. Um, another good in- bit of information, there was a pothole down the street, down the hill from uh, where I live, and it was bugging. I, f- I hit it a couple times, and I want to tell you, I mean, I, I thought my Prius was going to fall in, but um, so uh, rather than just be aggravated about it, I went online, and I, I, I said, well, there's got to be a way to report this. I know you typically call your councilman, but that takes a few extra steps. So if you go online and look up San Diego and s- street repair, you will get to a link, and they will ask you for a, an exact address. And believe it or not, about I think a week later, the thing has been repaired. So, you know, you, you know, the government works for us, not the other way around. And uh, so, just take charge of those. Uh, take situations. charge of your potholes. There you go. So, and then you're off to. Uh, I guess you're going to Las Vegas. Las Vegas. You know, my wife owns a store that sells cancer products to women cancer survivors. So there's a big trade show, and so her big vendor mm-hmm. invited her. So I was going to fly down, but she forgot to pack so much stuff that. I'm going to drive down since I'm taking all of her stuff. <laughs> Pack up the U-Haul and go, huh? <laughs> you know, it doesn't take much longer to drive than it does to fly. In fact, if your flight's at all late, it takes the same amount of time. There you go. So. But we shouldn't delay much longer because on the line we have our guest. Uh, she is a doctor, Dr. Lucy Kalanity, and uh, her husband, before he left us, wrote the number one best-selling book on the New York Times list, which is, which is unbelievable. And it's called uh, When Breath Becomes Air. And, and Lucy, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, our pleasure. So we know you're, you're, uh, you're calling from the uh, Northern California, so we appreciate that. And, um, well, gosh, I mean, I know Richard is the one who made the introduction, so I'd like him to explain how he uh, is connected with your family uh, initially, and then we'll get into everything else. How'd that work out, Richard? Well, many, many years ago, I met this lovely couple down in Kingman, Arizona, Dr. Paul and Sue Kalanity, and Paul is, is to this father. day, that's the father, mm-hmm. and he's, he's a um, cardiologist down in Kingman, and mm-hmm. the family had, has three sons, Paul Jr., and then Sumon and Jivon, and so I, I met them many years ago and then started working with them a few years later. I did some specialty project work mm-hmm. initially and then 
have in the in the last oh I don't know decade or so done all kinds of things in, in terms of working with the family, as well as the children and the and and everybody that's been married into the family and now there's you know grandkids and, but just a great couple, um, really interesting story, a couple that migrated from India. In fact, I think they had a marriage that wasn't very well received by the families because I know one was Hindu and one was Christian. Right. And sort of lived out the American success story, not only in terms of being financially successful, but also in terms of the significant contributions they've made to their community, the local community, the educational community there, obviously the medical community. Well, my so people who've given back tremendously mm -hmm. to the community and who are very philanthropic as well. We're coming along here to my, my uh, niece just, uh, she, she was you know, Catholic, she just married a Jewish guy. So I went to that wedding, it was great. Half the church had yarmulkes and, and half didn't. And I, I happened to wear one, so there you go. <laughs> well, when my cousin, who's Italian, married a Polish woman in a little village in Pennsylvania, uh -huh. My mom is Polish. You know, we're half Italian, half Polish. Uh -huh. You know, you know that that's like considered a big deal. Uh -huh. And he's, you know, where we're from, right. back east. And so they had all the Italians sit on the left side of the church, and all the Polacks sit on the right side <laughs> of the church. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shouldn't be going there because we have a, a very it's, important it's, show, but it's, it's just it's funny. Called, it's Poles, Richard. Not well, Poles. I'm just I'm half Polish, so I can call him that. Okay. So, but I, I've never, you know. So, and I didn't know where to sit because I'm half and half. Okay, mm -hmm. so I had to stand in the aisle. There you go. Anyway, <laughs> Lucy, I'm sorry. We have, <laughs> but, but we drive. You're, you're reminding me of our wedding, which was the mixing in our generation was my family's British, Paul's family's Indian. And uh, we, Paul and I wore Indian clothes, and then both our dads wore British morning suits with tails. Oh, so we, <laughs> I love that type of mixing. Oh, my god. Well, I, you know, I, my wife is a practicing Buddhist and has been so since she was a teenager. So I was actually married in a Buddhist temple. Really? Which, which, wow. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. The things, we, and I never knew that, Richard. That's you never knew that? No, I didn't know that. Well, look. So I mean, you're part Buddhist, I guess. Well, you know, Martin Luther King said we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Is that what he said? So we're all alike in our differences. <laughs> we're all okay. the same, but we're all different. There you go. And there, you, and there's the rub. So anyway, that, that's the history. So in the spirit of full disclosure, yes, I have one of my clients on the line. So, so Lucy, this is great. Uh, you and Paul are both uh, MDs, both doctors. Um, I guess we could start with your bio first, and uh, then we'll talk about Paul. So you were born and raised where? And um, take it from there. Um, sure. Uh, and Richard, thank you for being our financial doctor. Oh, sure. um, <laughs> so I was... Um, uh, Paul and I met in medical school at Yale, so um, I'll back up from there. I, um, I was born in Paris, actually, and then mostly grew up in Michigan. Oh. And Paul um, was born in New York. Um, his parents were originally from India, and then their whole family moved to rural Arizona, like you say, Kingman, Arizona, where his dad was a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, and Paul himself always actually thought he would be a writer. That was his big dream as a young person, and then ultimately made his way into medicine um, because that's another place that stories happen and, and, you know, the human condition is really brought to light. So he, he was a doctor and a writer, and that was part of why I fell in love with him uh, in medical school. And then we moved out to the Bay Area in California, mm -hmm. and I became an internal medicine physician, and he became a neurosurgeon. Mm -hmm. um, and I know we're going to talk about this, but um, he was diagnosed with cancer during that time when he uh, was training as a doctor. Yeah. But let's back a little. So you grew up in high school in Michigan and college. Uh, where'd you go to undergrad? And, and, and I went to Dartmouth for undergrad. Okay. And then Yale for med school. And Paul went to Stanford for undergrad and Yale for med school. And then when we were finished and we got married, he was kind of like Stanford or bust. And um, I felt the same <laughs> way about try, trying out the West Coast. Um, so then we both ended up uh, 
in the Bay Area. So you're very bright in your own right, Lucy. So in in, uh, in high school, I mean, uh, your family I mean, was, was your dad in the, in the academics, or I mean, what what drove you to be to uh, to do so well? Um. Yeah, good question. Who knows? My parents were really supportive, although they didn't pressure us. Um, mm -hmm. And Paul's parents were kind of the same. Um, I think both our families were sort of really interested in, um, like, learning for the sake of learning and mm -hmm. then also um, the importance of kind of striving and trying hard. Um, uh, and Paul kind of writes about it in the book, too. Um, uh, so I don't know. <laughs> but, back, but back in Michigan, like, you, you went to public high school? or? Um... Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, it must have been a pretty good school, and uh, you got yourself into Dartmouth from there, so not bad. <laughs> but, but but I know for a yeah, fact I that I, I know for a fact that when when you talk about being literary, I know Paul's mother, of course, um, had him reading all kinds of things by the age of ten that maybe he shouldn't have even been reading by the age of ten. So oh yeah, lo long saw, long history. Yeah, of, I saw that in the book. <laughs> yeah, she he writes in the book when he's describing his childhood, and he says something like, "My mother had no idea how intoxicating the." the um the romantic poetry she gave me yeah. was because she was feeding him all these books well right. yeah she was she was disturbed with the uh the school system in the city and she didn't want her you know she went out and got that list of books of uh you know what they should be reading you know as far as advanced and and all that and, and actually i think she got involved with the school system itself right and uh to, to she joined the school board yeah, yeah she wanted to help improve the schools and so she joined the school board and then she um, her kids all became big readers, and same thing with their friends. And I guess she, um, and she did help, didn't she? I mean, didn't she? She did, them? yeah. She, as an example, um, the she, I think she helped bring the PSAT mm -hmm. um, to Kingman, or helped facilitate kids thinking about college in a way that um, many of them hadn't thought they had access to it prior to that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, Kingman at one point I think had one of the lowest academic rankings, not yeah. only in Arizona but in the nation. Anyway, we've got to pause it right there. We'll be right, right back with Dr. Lucy Kalanity and about the book that her husband wrote right after this. Hang on. All right, we are coming back with Dr. Lucy Kalanity. Do you know that song, Lucy? You ever heard it? You're probably too busy reading. No, she's too young. <laughs> That's, that's a, Get Smart. That's the theme song from Get Smart. You, pr you probably that's why the, that's why she is smart. She didn't watch all this garbage yeah, like we did. Watch it, did <laughs> so, Lucy, what class were you and Paul in at Yale when you met? Do you remember? We met in 2003 in the fall. We were in the class of 2007. Okay. So we graduated from med school in 2007. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. What, what, did you meet in in an actual class or just on campus or where? No, we were in the same class. They, there's about a hundred people who enter med school at each med school sure. um, every year. So we were, and it's weird because about 10% of our class married each other. And really? I think that's kind of usual. Yeah. yeah. So we weren't the only couple. That's yep. funny. 10%, that's wow. quite a bit. So <laughs> that's 20, that's, that's 20 people there, right? Well, I was thinking, ten, I think it was so. probably like five or seven. Oh, couples. five. Oh, I see. 10% yeah. total. Okay. Yeah, Joe, 100 I times 10% is 10. Thought, that's why you do these. This counties. is a financial show. Okay. <laughs> Well, I was thinking 10% uh, twice, I guess. I don't yeah. know. But anyway. That would be 20%. Whatever. <laughs> we'll leave the math. We'll do the math later at the break, though. But um, uh, anyway, well, getting back to your career, Lucy, um, when did you decide that you wanted to be pursue a medical career? Is that in college or, um, or even earlier? No, it was in college, actually, um, toward the end of college. I actually thought I would be an engineer and I also thought about being a math teacher. I really loved math. Um, uh, but then I realized I was interested in psychology and then I really loved biology classes. Um, 
uh, starting with organic chemistry and I um, uh, and then into biology. And I, I kind of had the idea that I loved communicating scientific information. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I got more into psychology, I was thinking about sort of the difficult decisions people make in their lives. And mm-hmm. then um, suddenly I, I was like, oh, you know what? This all comes together in medicine. Um, so I think that was how I, and then I had to take a ton of classes to get ready to apply, yeah. but um, so what, so, that, was, that was worth it. So what was your major in, in college? Did you major in a... I majored in psychology and minored in math. Huh, isn't that something? And and uh, got all, went into Yale. Well, um, the book is phenomenal. Number one on the New York Times bestseller list. You must be selling them uh, uh, hand over fist now. I mean, you've been on several shows. I, sh- I should have mentioned, you know, you've been on, what, NPR and, and uh, several, if you, right? Mm-hmm. Like Morning Edition and WBUR, and then I went to England and was on BBC Radio, which is really exciting. Ah, isn't that something? Isn't that something? But yeah, it's amazing how many people Joe and I run into who are actually reading the book or, who've, or who have read the book. Oh right yeah, I caught my friend, my friend Lori lost her husband four years ago at the age of fifty-four to cancer, and um, I said, "Gee, you really ought to take a look at the book." She goes, "I'm reading it right now." <laughs> wow. And then wow, I, amazing. And, and then I was talking to a kid in the coffee house uh, the other day, and he was uh, studying for his MCATs, and uh, I told him we were going to do this interview uh, this week, and he says, my aunt is a psychologist, and she's raving about this book, and, and she's reading it, and I have to read it now. So I'm just, it just it's unbelievable the, the way it, it's really struck a nerve. But, yeah, Lucy, know. and I couldn't bring the book in the studio because my son saw it on my <laughs> kitchen table when he took it. So. <laughs> wow, amazing. But... Um, you know, look, it's mortality is uh, we're all stuck in the same boat. Uh, it's just, you know, we've all lost loved ones. And the, the fact that uh, this is so poignant and, uh, uh, you know, so everyone can relate to it because we've all lost loved ones in our lives, friend, love and friends. Um, I guess we should talk a little bit about Paul now and uh, his his career grew up in Kingman, Arizona, of, uh, of all places. I guess his dad moved from New York uh, early on to practice there. And then he uh, went, went to Stanford, got his BA in, in master's in English literature, and then a bachelor's in human biology. And then he goes off to England to get a, uh, a master's in, uh, in history and philosophy of science and medicine, and then at Cambridge. And then he goes off to Yale and graduates cum laude. And uh, you're starting off your lives there, and then uh, uh, the, the cancer strikes. So um, at what point did he did he want to uh, re- realize he was uh, writing a book? That I guess he wrote a, 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 an op-ed in the New York Times about how much time he had left, and then he got approached from there. How did that all work? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I can't believe it all happened um, uh, this way. But um, he uh, was diagnosed with, cancer, with terminal lung cancer, or metastatic lung cancer that couldn't be cured yep. um, at age 36 when he was um, finishing his training as a neurosurgeon, and, and, nev- and for a while, yeah, he never smoked. Yeah. I just want people to know he never was a smoker. So uh, we can talk about possible cause causation later. But anyway, keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. So he um, uh, he initially went back to work as a neurosurgeon because the work was really important to him. Um, and then, uh, as he was kind of contemplating his mortality, um, you know, faced with his own terminal illness um, as a young doctor he wrote this essay called How Long Have I Got Left? And it was published in the New York Times. And it talks about, you know, the difficulty of facing uncertainty no matter how much time you have left and how you decide to to live your life and spend your time. And he got a huge response from it. And he was really gratified. He heard from patients and doctors and 
literary agent. Um, and he had written in that article, you know, if I knew I had 10 years, I'd keep treating patients and diseases. If I knew I only had one year, I'd write a book. Um, and, and that's kind of what ended up happening. By the time he um, soon thereafter became too sick to work as a neurosurgeon, he was writing. Um, and even when he was pretty debilitated, um, he continued writing and, and recording the experience of facing mortality. And it, it was partly a way for him to process it for himself. And then he also knew that he was writing for a reader to bring them into that tough experience and, um, and reflect on their own lives and mortality. Um, and I think that's why people are responding to it. But basically, he wrote it in the last year of his life. And then he died um, just before he turned 38. Um, and the manuscript at that point actually was still a... Um, you know, like a Word doc on his computer. Mm. Um, so the past year has been working with, he got the book deal when he was alive. Um, he was extremely excited about it. And mm. then um, uh, I love his editor, Andy Ward at Random House, who um, uh, made it possible. Mm-hmm. Well, all kinds of fate has to intervene, I guess, uh, to, to get, you know, Dr. Seuss, I don't know if you knew that, but he, uh, he, lived, he lived here from 19, I'd say, 46, all the way till he passed in 91, and he got, his book got rejected multiple times. He had a drawer full of rejection letters, and one day he was walking, uh, in, I think, in New York, and he was walking down the street, he bumped into a guy from Random House, and um, he gave him his first break, and he said, if I had been walking on the other side of the street, it never would have happened. Is so. that why they called him Random House? Yeah. <laughs> but, but Lucy, would, wouldn't you say Good Paul? One, Richard. Thanks, Joe. I do do the humor on this show. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting Lucy, for would, one. <laughs> wouldn't you say that Paul was very interested in, in the issue of how to live a meaningful life? Yeah, he, he was. I mean, I think a lot of us are. Um, of course. Um, and he kind of came at it from all these different angles. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, he studied English literature and he was um, really interested in literature as a way to understand the human condition. And even when he was healthy, he was kind of obsessed with death. Um, that's a weird way to say it because he was also like really alive and vibrant, but he was really interested in death as a like philosophical um, and intellectual problem to get your head around. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then he talks, he quotes literature a lot in the book, like as an example the first half of the book about being um, a young person and a doctor is called Imperfect Health I Begin. And the second half of the book about being a patient uh, is called Cease Not Till Death. And those are actually little lines from Walt Whitman's poem, Song of Myself. So it's not even overt all the time, but there are tons of literary references. And mm-hmm. as I'll read through, I'll, I'll get one each time I read the book and be like, oh, Paul, <laughs> you and your literary references. <laughs> right. It's really beautiful, I think. Well, he was extremely well read. Obviously, um, is everybody in his family like that? The brothers too. I guess they all had to read as well, right? Uh, the mother. Yeah, was they're there. all like this kind of really great mix of um, cerebral and then just like really jokey and funny and relaxed. Mm-hmm. They're great. His brothers are great, and yeah. We've got a great basketball player here in town, Sam. We got one minute to the break, but uh, Bill Walton. I don't know if you're familiar with him, uh, but he went on to basketball greatness. And he and his three—they grew up in East County here. Uh, they were four boys, and the, and they would the mother would read to all of them at one time on the floor, and she'd be sitting on the couch. And, and Bill's job is to hold the book so they all could read it together. And I, I just thought that's great. And he. Uh, so I guess, you know, we've we got to learn these great habits as, as youngsters, uh, the love of reading and, and being curious and, and, and all that. So, But um, we're coming up on the break right now. Justin, why don't we go into it right about now, and we'll come back with Dr. Lucy Colanti and talk about her husband's book, uh, When Breath Becomes Air, right after this. Hang on. 
We're back with the second half of the award-winning It's Your Money and Your Life. And now this is the time where Richard likes to thank our sponsors. Big thank you to our sponsors, as always. Could not do this show without them. UBS with Michael Carrancha and Drew Fetus. Thank you, UBS. Also, I'll see you guys down in the desert for the big tennis tournament at Indian Wells. Looking forward to that. Our favorite CPAs on the planet, recent guest Jason Kruger, CPA with Signature Analytics, the best CFO firm that I've ever run into. Also, more traditional CPAs, Polito Epic CPAs in lovely San Marcos. One of our great friends, Carl Sheeler with Berkeley Research Group, also recently became a best-selling author. Carl's a business valuation expert, helps business owners understand the risks that drive their businesses. You reduce that risk, you increase value. Talk about increasing value. How about Joel Gruskin with Cost Segregation Initiatives, helping real estate owners improve their cash flow. He's doing that for us right now at Belmont Park. Brenda Geiger with the Law Office of Brenda Geiger, Asset Protection and Estate Planning. She is a soon-to-be guest on this show. Another upcoming guest, Sean Puckett, along with Lane Elliott at California Republic Bank. And one of their great speakers at their conference on March 24th is going to be a guest on this show, Heidi Hanna. So looking forward to that. Great employee benefits firm, used to be known as Marsmatics Insurance, now Hub International. In fact, one of their experts is speaking at the California Republic Bank event on March 24th. The LG Experience of the Lombardi Group, helping wealth advisors make heroes out of CPAs to those CPAs' very best clients. One of our great friends who heads up the SeniorSafeAndSound.org project here in San Diego to help prevent elder financial abuse. That would be Paul Hines, CEO of Hearthstone Private Wealth Management. Also, the Berry Good Food Foundation. I know Michelle Lirac, frequent guest on this show. Mm-hmm. In fact, a recent guest with Berry Food Foundation. Right. Our newest sponsor, Nathan Watkins with Worldwide Credit, helping people get great home loans. Boy, it's amazing how interest rates are just staying low. And last but not least, if you need to pick me up a great cup of coffee, want to hear some great music, you go where over you to go where La, Joe La Stash Coffee House in their third location. We should be open about mid-April in the 1,000 block of University, I believe. So um, look for that. Good and, stuff. So uh, Joe, how do our amazing sp- sponsors get? noticed by our amazing group of listeners well if you get on the computer get over to iymoney.com there's a sponsor tab across the top of the page in the drop down menu you can find out all about our sponsors there all their contact information and bio, bio and everything else and they've been working with Richard for many many years with great success right in some cases 30 years <laughs> there so, you go since I was seven so, but anyway but let's anyway. get back to our esteemed guest uh, Dr. Lucy Kalanity and uh, about the book that her husband wrote before he passed and so, so um, Lucy you know your, your husband had an amazing sense of humor and I wish he would have brought it out a little bit more in the book um, he, I mean it came out a little bit but he was one of the funniest people that I had ever talked to and I, yeah, have, I have a funny too. story he, he called me um, late in 2014 as it became apparent that he probably had a writing project on his hands with all kinds of questions that you and I still even discuss about you know entities for publishing and foreign taxes to be and all this good stuff but he was aware that I wrote a book that was somewhat successful. And so he said to me one day, he said, in a quick phone conversation, he said, can I ask you a personal question? I said, what's that? He goes, how did you feel after you actually got your book out and the whole thing was published? I said, well, Paul, it was really interesting. I, I said, it was an amazing feeling. I, I said, I, I felt like I'd lost 40 pounds. And without skipping a beat, he goes, well, I've already taken care of that part. <laughs> so. Oh man! Hey, I know, just funny. Hey, hey, Lucy, in the book, he mentions this kid who was uh, from the really uh, from a poor family, Leo, who did wind up going to to Yale, I think, out of high school. Had he stayed in touch with that youngster, or not from, or, or, or not aware? Um, I know yeah, I know that was one of his friends. Um, 
uh, yeah, no, they were in touch, and uh, along with some other people from Kingman who were all high school friends who stayed in touch. And what's Leo up to now? Do you have any idea? I was just wondering because uh, he came from very humble origins, and I just hope he's sounds like he's a pretty smart kid, and I hope he's doing well. So. Yeah, I think so. I think he might be in the Pacific Northwest. I'm not sure what his career is. Okay, well that's good. That's good to know. Well, there was yeah, a gr- group from his high school, you know, that went on to uh, some, some pretty good success, uh, and that's, um, you know, maybe maybe uh, Paul's mom had a lot to do with that. I don't know. She's well, I'm sure she had a lot to do with it. I mean, back back in Kingman in the day, I mean, they they would tell, for example, the brightest students to go join the army or the navy when they graduated from high school. Yeah, that's you know, as opposed to going to college or. Well, to, I think to, they not not to say that serving the country isn't a great thing to do because it is a great thing to do. But the point is, is that it was sort of viewed as just lim- very limited options, and there's no reason why that should be. And I, I know Sue, Paul's mom, helped change that culture in Kingman tremendously. So this best-selling book, Lucy, um, the editing. I mean, did you, did you help with the manuscript at all yourself? And 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 the editing. I mean, that must have gone through several processes, right? Yeah, it was interesting to see because being a doctor, I didn't know anything about publishing, mm-hmm. nor did Paul. And um, I stood in for him after he died for all of those decisions, you mm-hmm. know, like um, what's the cover going to look like and, um, you know, reading through the various drafts and the copy edited version and, um, you know, all that, all those kinds of things. And then um, uh, certainly I ha- our, the editor flew out to meet with me. Um, and then I worked on the epilogue for the book and wrote the epilogue, which talks about um, how Paul died and then reflects on his life and death and um, sort of what's been happening since. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, And certainly I didn't expect to do that because um, we didn't know that Paul would die and, and not see the book itself actually published. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's been quite a year um, kind of working on that, but it feels great. It feels like keeping a promise to Paul. Um, you know, he really wanted to make sure it was published, and we talked about that even as we knew he was dying. Well, not only was it published, it's a, it's, it's a huge success, though. But, uh, but the, well, the one thought when my dad was going through uh, my dad had cancer for five years and, you know, lung cancer, and, uh, you know, he really, it's a long, you know, debilitating process, as most people might know. I wish more young kids would, would see this. Uh, it may, they may want to think twice about smoking or vaping or putting anything in their lungs. But, but the one thought that got me through the whole g- griefing process and, and was, um, you know, every, I'm not, everyone has to go through this. Uh, I'm not exempt from it. Um, so I'm, that's the one, that was the one thought that got me through it. And I don't know what, how other people cope when they see a loved one slip away, but, um, did you have anything that you hung on to? I don't know how, you know, were you uh, into any particular faith or anything or, uh, uh, or, or and Paul or the family or, I mean, it's just, it's just and friends. I mean, it sounds, the great thing is you had a large support network and uh, some people don't, you know, so. Right, right. We were really lucky for that. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of things we couldn't have done without the support of our family and friends, which mm-hmm. include having a baby while this, while Paul was sick and um, finishing this book. Mm. And it's true. I, I think it's interesting what you said about nobody's exempt. I, I, you know, I'm a doctor, but then now having been a caregiver for my husband, um, I have to kind of think of it as, you know, like we're a nation of caregivers to each other mm. in all these different ways. And then um, we'll all lose somebody and ultimately we'll all face illness or disability, um, you know, in some way. And, um, uh, it, it does make me think about what we need and what, what we need to be doing for each other. Um, and even sort of like 
policies that help support families um, through this time, of course. And I do think, you know, we need to talk as a nation, as a community, we need to talk about death and grief uh, in a more open way. I mean, there were years ago, you're probably too young to to remember, but uh, there was a time, I think in the 60s, you couldn't even, if someone had cancer, you'd, you'd say, oh, he or she has the C word. You couldn't even say the word cancer. And, um, you know, we've come a long way from then, but, but you know, other cultures, I think, uh, they have different attitudes in, uh, and uh, about, about death, and, and uh, you know, it's not a taboo subject, so, um, right? Yeah, I had this interesting experience earlier, um, uh, or last year, where um, th- the cemetery where Paul is buried now celebrated Day of the Dead. They do actually... Um, yes. A couple big holidays every year, and they do the the Qingming Festival, which is a Chinese one, and another Chinese one every year, and then they do Dia de los Muertos. Muertos. In Mexico, um, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they had this is going to sound crazy, but at the cemetery, they literally had a taco truck and a mm-hmm. mariachi band, and all these families were there, like picnicking and having tacos, and it was interesting because I remember thinking, like, wow, this is I'm learning so much from this day and how meaningful it feels because it was this really obvious intertwining of life out, and death my friend um, bill, you know yeah my friend bill and michelle went down to mexico i guess mexico and it is a big down there they really do it in a huge way so maybe that's a, a little mission that uh, i wouldn't mind seeing it myself richard we should probably get down there and see well, we are going down to mexico next month right we're going to rancho la puerta but yeah. but um yeah but, I but mean, lucy isn't the book also about living in the present we can oh, talk about that after the break. Yeah, we got to take a little break. Come right back to Dr. Lucy Kalanithi and about uh, the book when one breath comes air right after this. Hang on. All right, we're back in the home stretch with Dr. Lucy Kalanithi and talking about the book of her late husband's uh, uh, bestseller, number one on the New York Times list, by the way, When Breath Becomes Air. And um, it's just a gem for, you know, we're, we all have to deal th- with this and go through this, this, po- this process, this painful process, and, and, uh, and somehow keep going on with our lives. Right, Richard? Yeah, but I, I, before we hit the break, I mentioned about living in the present. Uh, Lucy, a lot of people who listen to the show know you may not, but I actually lost my eyesight in October of 2001 and was disabled for about 16 months. Fortunately, got to see again in early 2003. Several, um, several surgeries later, right? Yeah, I think I'm up to about 15. Yeah. But I know before I had that experience in my life, I was always sort of working on this trajectory to some point that was up, up, and away somewhere in the future. And after that experience, I became much more present-oriented where <clears throat> I wasn't necessarily working on a trajectory anymore because I, I gained some sort of knowledge about what was... I think more important. Would you say this book is a lot about living in the present? Yes. Um, uh, You know, it's about dying, obviously, but then it's definitely also about living. And Paul kind of gets at that in two ways. He talks about um, sort of the idea of really identifying your values and living your life according to your values. And then he certainly talks about um, living in the present, especially when you don't know how much time you have left. And, um, which is all of us actually, none none of us know how much time we have. What do you think about it? That's right. And for us, it was really, it became really illuminated because, you know, in the last year of his life, I was on maternity leave. We had this infant daughter. He was becoming more debilitated and it kind of was like, there was no future for us we, we didn't see the future for ourselves in the same way. We didn't see it stretch out over years and years of marriage. He, you know, it was most likely that he wouldn't see our daughter grow up. And so we were sort of forced to think in the present. And now there's all this research about that and about mindfulness and about 
um, how living in the moment is, can actually be really healthy for you. Um, and in a way, we are sort of forced to do that and actually t- taught me a lot. I saw a report the other day that they say hiking is very good, getting out in nature. And, and Paul certainly loved to do to do that. And uh, you as well, I guess. Right, Lucy? You, you like to you're still running. So you like to get out. There. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But having an appreciation for, for nature and just getting out there and, uh, and away from home. Matter of fact, there's a passage in the book where he describes, I guess, when he went to that camp um, as a youngster um, and describing the night sky and going up to the mountain there. And, and, and I think it was in Atlanta, wasn't it? Uh, somewhere. Um, oh, it's, in, it's near Lake Tahoe, actually. Yeah, it was Lake Tahoe. Tahoe. Lake Tahoe. Yeah, I was a little confused on that. I th- but I thought, anyway, um, uh, but the way he described that. They gave up a chance to do an internship in Atlanta to go be a counselor in Tahoe, I think is how that story went. Uh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Right. But uh, the description, uh, he described the outdoors there in that evening and how night becomes day, and, and, uh, and uh, it was just beautiful, uh, his writing. So, well, he always wanted to be a writer, and guess what? He, he is one, and a best-selling one. Yeah. So, uh, you know. Uh, it's great to, to, to see this happen because, uh, I mean, there's other artists that become uh, well-known. Uh, he's going to obviously get more well-known, you know, by, by this work in his life. And, um, and that's it. We all have uh, an expiration date. And, uh, you know, he's accomplished quite a bit in his life, and so have you. So we appreciate that, and, uh, and uh, congratulations. So, so Lucy, was it, was it a difficult decision to make a decision to have Katie, to have a child? Yeah, it was a really difficult decision. We um, we had always thought about having a child together around that time when he was finishing his neurosurgery residency, um, which is seven years long. And then he's di- he was diagnosed with cancer when he was 36. And we, you know, kind of looked at each other and said, well, should we think about doing this um, despite being sick? And, and we knew that his disease um, was not curable, you know, barring a big medical innovation in the short term. Um and I asked him, he writes about this in the book, but I asked him and said, you know, don't, don't you think that saying goodbye to a child would make your death even more painful? And his answer was really astounding to me. He said, you know, well, wouldn't it be great if it did? Um, and he meant, you know, for him, the idea of having such love and meaning um, that comes from having a child, um, you know, doesn't that doesn't that make your life so great um, that it's worth it? And then, you know, he died, and, and she's still a toddler, and it's up to me to help her thrive going forward and, and our family, and she certainly is really thriving. And I, I'm very glad we made the decision, but I also needed to know um, and trust in myself and our family that, um, that we could, uh, you know, uh, that I could raise her going forward. Yeah. yeah, and further, Hillary is right. It does take a village anyway to raise a child. That's right. Um, this right. has never been a truer word spoken, in my humble opinion, having raised three. <laughs> so, Lucy, you're an internal medicine physician, and what's a, a, a day in your life like? I mean, you must uh, have quite a schedule yourself. What, you see just a yeah, gen, I, um, gen, general patients yourself, or general general practice, or how? Uh, what do you do, to, basically? Yeah, so I work at Stanford, and I see patients... Um, uh, in an outpatient clinic, and then I also um, am part of a um, uh, institute at Stanford focused on healthcare value. Um, that's called the Clinical Clinical Excellence Research Center. So mm. I kind of have a feet in two different areas. Um, mm. Yeah, and then and then over the past year, I've barely established a routine um, since Paul died because I've also been working so much on the book, and then now I'm promoting the book. So mm. I'm still waiting to, mm. to find out what my schedule is, so to speak. Well, um, but that's where my home is at yeah. Stanford. Well, I'm sure you'll your schedule will be busy uh, once it settles down uh, from from the books. So, um, any other um, 
going to talk to anybody in other countries or what? I guess it uh, must be popular in India, the book, right? Has it caught on there much? Yeah, it's just coming out in India. Um, mm-hmm. So I've started to see some um, tweets about it from India, and um, uh, I'm kind of following what's happening there. Um, and then I did get to travel to London, which was really amazing, and um, uh, promote the book there. And that was just really interesting to be, um, uh, you know, in in England, which is in some ways very similar to the U.S. and in other ways different. I got to vi- a visit um, Macmillan Cancer Support, which is a big cancer charity, and and talk about what they're doing about end of life care and mm-hmm. supporting families. Um, uh, so that was a really fun experience. Might I suggest Charlie Rose talk to your publisher there, see if they got any clout over there, because that that might be a good place for you as well. So I'm sure there's going to be you know many more interviews and people to talk with about this, right? So I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have a lot of listeners, so, um, so I think getting the word. I mean, I, I have to admit, this is one of the best books I've ever read. It's just completely poignant, but but I think um, I think it just really really makes a strong statement about the point that nobody knows how much time they have left. So that's why it's so important to actually do meaningful things while you're here. And I don't mean in the future; I mean now. So when Paul became a patient in a place where he used to be a doctor, uh, boy, that must just been so uh, um, different and. Uh, was there anything that he that he appreciated uh, coming at it from the other side of the coin uh, there that uh, you know as a patient did did he ever of course everyone knew him uh, in, in the facility so it's not like he, he was a patient in a place no one knew him but um, how did, uh, you know that must have been just incredible to go through huh yeah um, he he loved his care team at Stanford and he'd worked there himself. And, and it was certainly disorienting, like you say. And he, he talks in the book about this interesting thing that maybe relates to, to Richard's experience of losing his eyesight for a period of time where he says, you know, as a doctor, I kind of thought of my job as somebody gets really sick and I connect to like two pieces of a train track together. You know, their life was on a trajectory and then I help them get better. And then I connect the train track back together for them. And instead when he himself got sick, he said, you know, it's actually not that straightforward. When you become ill, um, in many ways, for many people, it can kind of change your identity in ways that you didn't expect, and it changes your sense of the future in ways you didn't expect. And so then he kind of went from thinking of his job like connecting the train track to instead, you know, being a compatriot with people on this um, unpredictable journey. And, um, you know, he'd been thinking about it, uh, you know, he was a really good doctor, but I think his his experience as a patient just really um, illuminated, uh, you know, the, what, the feeling of what it feels like to be ill. Yeah, well, I think when anybody goes through something that major, um, I think the main thing about life is, is it's never the same as it was. That doesn't mean that it's worse or better or anything, you know, judgmental like that. It, 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 it just becomes different. And in many cases, it does become better because I think people gain insights into, into things that are maybe more important. But, but, but before we wrap up here, Richard, we, ju- we just really have to thank uh, Lucy for her courage and bravery uh, for sharing Absolutely, this and also to thank her for so very quickly being able to do this show when your guest who was scheduled decided to do other things last week, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> so, Lucy, we really appreciate that. Yeah, Lucy, thank you so much. Thank and you m- so much. Thank you. Much continued success, and thanks for sharing this poignant story. Uh, everyone needs to read When Breath Becomes Air, folks, number one on the best uh, bestseller list in New York Times. You will not forget it, I yeah. guarantee you. Anyway, Richard, thank you for great Great seeing you this week. Uh, Justin Hart, our sound engineer, thanks for making us sound terrific. Thanks to Craig Blanke, our con executive, and to Dave Sniff, our programming genius here at KFMB. We'll see you next week. All these shows are at iymoney.com. Uh, catch them anytime, and uh, good night.